0: Amen. Please be seated. And please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. have the passage or more than just the focus this morning listed there for you so we have context. Our focus will be verse 19 and verse 20 of chapter 6. I am working on a book. I've worked on one for years and I don't know if I'll ever finish it, but it's on the intros and the outros of Paul's 13 epistles. It's intriguing what he puts in by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course, Um, what he puts in his introduction, what he puts in his conclusion, how he salutes his audience, and then the things he says by way of farewell. Um, Just a study of these things. I'm sure there are other ones out there, uh, but it's been a project for me for some years, and as we work through these books together, I try to add to it. And this conclusion uh, is no exception. It's uh, packed with all sorts of closing comments that are worth our digging into. Because in oratory or in literature, when you're writing a letter to somebody or you're giving a speech, your introduction and your conclusion, it's meant to wrap things together. It's usually a practical outflow. The conclusion is a practical outflow of everything that's been described in the letter. The same for a speech. So I pay close attention to how he starts and how he finishes. Uh, and this is a, a really a case in point of where we should pay close attention, even though we know we're coming to the last few sentences, and we might think oh, it was just a, fair, a quick farewell. Uh, much more here for us. Um, it's been almost a year now since we started the book of Ephesians, this magnificent epistle. Uh, the book, the letter, six chapters worth, has painted a glorious picture of the total perfection of Christ's advocacy for his people given us a picture of who we are as new creatures in Christ, How, who we are as a new community of believers bound together as a family, as living stones making up a temple, the temple of God. We have our security rooted in the eternal sovereign decrees of the gracious God who gave us Christ. And we have this confidence that builds throughout the book. And then in chapter 6, if, as if it wasn't enough already what he had said, we have the armor of Christ given to us this uh, battle-proven, battle-won armor that's ours to wear, uh, ours to acknowledge as ours. And so we're strengthened for the battle against sin that comes against us, primarily in the person of the devil and then his various vestiges. So you have all this buildup, and then what would he say in the last words of his epistle? Well, he tells us to pray. That's the corporate reality. Pray for one another, for sure. But then he says something very personal, and as an apostle speaking personally, we should really, our ears should perk up to hear what he says. Because he's serving as one of the foundations of the church, uh, one of those stones in which the church is being built on, the apostolic witness. What would he want the people of God to pray for him concerning? So we come to the passage. This is God's holy word. I'll start at verse 16 of Ephesians 6. But again, the focus is the personal prayer request of Paul in verse 19 and verse 20. Hear God's holy word. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, Lord, we have arrived at the final sentences of this epistle to the Ephesians and to us. What a magnificent trek it has been through this display of your sovereign grace through Christ. We give you praise for the revelation that we have learned about us as your people, your church, and of course about Christ, our Savior. Now we come to the end and once again we seek your Holy Spirit's help to understand and apply your word Give us both clarity about the gospel message and boldness to proclaim it. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The letter ended with an appeal for us to stand against the devil and his flaming darts. We are fighting the devil at every turn. Um, The devil and his legions come at us. We're even fighting the uprising of our sinful flesh which is a vestige of Satan's work for sure. We have no shortage of enemies against us. So we are in a spiritual battle. Paul wants us to know it. Um, He uses a metaphor with the armor, but it's as real as can be, this spiritual battle that we are engaged in. The reality of our spiritual warfare. This has been in view all this time. Now, after equipping us, the people of God, with the armor, recognizing we have the armor, being aware of the fight, Paul gives a personal prayer request asking the people at Ephesus to pray for him and all the people who would receive the copies of this letter to us to this day. Prayer for this kind of thing for the church. But he's praying very personally at this point. Just a few remaining statements and look what he asks for in verse 19. Praying for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. For which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. There are two very clear prayer requests that Paul is asking for. One, Lord, give me clarity. Clarity about the gospel message. Now, Paul was clear in the gospel message. We can see this through his epistles. So he must have known in asking for this prayer request that it could be shaky, it could be something that would become unclear if God would not give him the strength to uphold clarity. So he prays for clarity, the words, the precision about the message of the gospel. Then he also prays for something else that he prays for in many other places and is used as a descriptor for whenever the church was most effective. Lord, give me boldness in proclaiming the gospel. He has been very bold. He's in chains. He's in house arrest. He's in jail, as it were. And he's praying for more boldness, that I would have this boldness. Suffering so much to this point for his preaching, yet he's asking God to continue to give him this boldness. He knew how easy it might be to lose courage. Clarity and boldness. These are the two features of Paul's request about what? It says in the passage, that words may be given to me, and opening my mouth boldly to do what? To proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Paul, to this point, right before this conclusion, has been describing the armor necessary to fend off the devil. Every one of us believers, responsible to recognize what is ours in Christ as we stand against the devil and against sin. But there's something related to what Paul prays for that concerns all of us as Christians in the church. There's a role that Paul has to play as an apostle in this battle, and he's asking for prayer concerning it. He's praying for clarity about the gospel message and boldness to proclaim it, courage to proclaim it, fearlessness to, complain, to, to proclaim it. This is an apostolic foundation of the church. So what he's praying for concerning himself is something we ought to be praying for the church, for the leadership of the church that sets the pace on this, that holds the church as good stewards of this. But we, the church, these prayers are for us, that there would be a clarity about the gospel message and a boldness about proclaiming it. That's exactly what Paul's praying for himself. And by extension, is one of the founders of the church this side of the cross This is what he's proclaiming. See, here's the practical reality. Each individual Christian has been equipped with what the Word of God says, what's true of us. Now, we've received this teaching because the church proclaims and it preaches the Word, and we meditate upon what the Word says. We hold the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and we trust with the helmet of salvation, and so on, all those elements. But what must continue to be fed to the people of God so that the armor stays fresh, if you will, is the clear, the clear message of the gospel with a boldness about it. Because the world will change around us all the time and it will press upon us and it will challenge us with the message we preach. And so we have to be all the clearer about what it is with precision and what it is not for that matter and be bold in that even when pressure comes against us. There are really two elements that come together to make the Christian church is preaching authentically what the Lord wills for us. Clarity and courage. Clarity and boldness. These are the two most important characteristics of authentic Christian preaching. When the church is faithful to do this, then the people of God remain equipped. They remain aware of their armor. I think Spurgeon really understood the importance of this preaching of the gospel and the clarity of it. When he said, the preaching of Christ is the whip that flogs the devil. The preaching of Christ is the thunderbolt, the sound of which makes all hell shake. So as the church maintains clarity and boldness, the people of God remain strong, they're aware, and they're able to answer the call that God has given them to mission. Clarity of the message. Notice the passage. Words may be given to me. He wants precision about what he declares. As I ought to speak, it says in the passage. Clarity of the message. Courage or boldness to proclaim. Open my mouth boldly, Paul says to pray for. That I may declare it boldly. Twice he refers to the words he speaks, twice to the boldness that he needs to declare it. Let's look at these very simply. A message on this simplicity of clarity and boldness shouldn't be too complex. I have two points. Clarity and then boldness. First of all, look at clarity concerning the gospel message in this passage. This is the request Paul gives. We know this is priority to him. Should be priority for the church. Pray also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. We know Paul knows the gospel. So there clearly can be the peril of making the gospel unclear. So, give me these words to speak, opening my mouth to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador, that it's a representative, someone who's supposed to bring the message of the one he or she represents. I am an ambassador in chains. He's in prison, he's locked up. He's a prisoner, no, or he's a, an ambassador no matter what, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Very simply now. The gospel is the message about Christ and salvation, period. Now, that's dynamic. There's much more. We could say it in different ways, but that's the gospel, the clarity of the gospel. The gospel of God is the good news about God reconciling the world in the person of Christ, period. The gospel of God, it's not our story, it's the story about someone else for us. We proclaim the gospel message. You know, I hear Christians are they're, they're quick to speak in terms of living out the gospel or be the gospel. I even heard someone say, be the gospel to each other. I know what they mean. If it's the fruit of the forgiveness we receive from God and we share that with one another, no trouble. I, I appreciate the, the sentiment. But the reality is the gospel is not something you live out. It's the message of Christ and what he's done for us. The settled, finished work of Christ for sinners. And if you believe in that, you are saved. You are in him. You are born again. That's the gospel. Now other things that flow out, they're gospel fruit. And we as believers should expect from one another that we have transform lives and we might hold each other to account in that regard. But the fundamental of the church's mission is to proclaim the gospel. In the gospel is the message that God has reconciled sinners to himself to the person of Christ. Believe on Christ and you will be saved. That's the clarity of the gospel. In heaven and earth could fall away. The church must remain steadfast on this. And Paul is praying that he would stay steadfast about this. Paul was ever so clear about the gospel message. In 1 Corinthians, he gave one of many synopsis of the the gospel message. Listen to what he said. I would remind you, brothers, this is 1 Corinthians 15, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Very to the point proclamation of what God has done for us in Christ. That's the clarity of the gospel that Paul wants to maintain, that the church has to recognize can be lost, can be made unclear. And so we ask for God to give us clarity about the gospel. I want you to notice the way that Paul describes the gospel in this particular passage. We'll see it in various ways, the gospel of Christ. Even Paul said, my gospel, the message he was given, um, the gospel of God. Here we have in verse nineteen to open my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Now, the mystery of the gospel here does not have to do with something that's undiscernible. It has to do with its origin. It was not something discovered. It was something that was given to us. The gospel is not intuitive. It's not natural for a person to imagine it or to make it up or to think that this is a possibility. A natural man would never, ever think of this plan of redemption that God has given. Now, I realize, preaching to a church, that most of you probably are very familiar with the gospel proclamation, the message that I've been going over, that we've been reading in the scriptures, that we hear throughout the liturgy, that we see displayed through the Lord's Supper and baptism. Um, so, we're somewhat accustomed to it, but recognize that if you can imagine never having any exposure to any of that, you would not think to yourself, okay, people are sinful generally. You might notice that things aren't so good, but they're, okay, they're sinful. Uh, what to solve? What to do about it? Well, would you ever imagine um, sending a second Adam to live as the first Adam failed to live, pass all tests that God gave, keep his law perfectly, and represent us? with all of our sins upon him on the cross so that God would be satisfied? Well, how would God be satisfied? God himself would have to do it, that God the Son would be the second Adam and do this for? You could not dream that up. The mystery of the gospel was revealed to us by God. So the mystery of the gospel has to be proclaimed because people won't sit there and come up with it and then go search it out. Unless the Spirit of God prompts them but the normal way that it happens is the message is proclaimed and people are awakened or enlivened or born again through the Spirit's ministry and the preaching of the gospel. It's the most normal way it happens and people are alert now to this and they believe. That's how it happened for you at some level. The mystery of the gospel has to do with its origin. It's from God. It comes from Him. L. Moller said this in reference to the clarity of the gospel, or the effectiveness of the gospel. There is something deeply mysterious about Christian preaching, both in terms of its communication and its term, in terms of its content. After all, what we preach is not what the world expects to hear. It is not a message they will hear anywhere else. No human wisdom, no school of philosophy, no secular salesman, no TV commercial speaker selling this or that is ever going to come up with this on his own. It's counterintuitive in most respects. People as individuals don't want to hear that they are sinners to begin with, let alone how there's an answer for this. The gospel is God's promise of Messiah and the fulfillment of it. So we have to get this message right. We have to be clear. We can't fall into adding or subtracting. It's easy to get off track. Paul knows this, so he says, pray for me that words may be given to me to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. The biblical message of redemption. We have to have this settled and understood. Not to please man, but to honor God, which will be for the betterment of man. It's always tempting to contort whatever message we're trying to convince people of, to contort it to them so that they will believe it. But at that point, you've changed it and it's not the thing to be believed. We mean well in doing it, But in process, it's no gospel at all. Certain words have to be communicated. He prays for the words to be given. He prays for clear proclamation that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly. And brothers and sisters, we have to recognize it's easy to warp the gospel message. How is this so? Well, many ways. In their well meaning ways to begin with. And most typically, it's because we, the church, always find ourselves in a context somewhere. We're a church in Overland Park, many of you in Overland Park, Kansas, Johnson County. Some of you have come from further distances. We're more of a metro area church, but there's still. Uh, a commonality among us, and we live in a culture that has a certain flavor to it, and that's the nature of it. So what might be tempting for us to contort might be different than a church that's in the city, or a church that's in El Salvador, or a church that's in Africa, or wherever you may be, because there's a context you find yourself in, and it's predominantly unbelieving. And so there will be pressures from that. that place that you're in. It could be a national pressure. It could be political pressure. It could be social pressure. Things that are just true of the place we're living in. And so we'll want to, as Christians, be involved with that. There's nothing wrong with that. But the church's mantle, its mission, first and foremost, is maintain clarity about the gospel to proclaim it boldly wherever God has ordained us to be in those contexts. Those contexts depend on the church being faithful even though they don't know it. So if the church is too worried about whatever the national, political, or social things that are going on are, they run the risk of coming off of the main thing onto a peripheral thing. And then when the main thing is no longer the main thing, the peripheral becomes the main. And it doesn't happen overnight. It happens over time. It could be this simple. You know, here we are, and this this is so much unrest in our society now. We as people in the church, as Christians, really need to focus on loving everyone and being kind towards everyone. I mean, I agree with that. We should all agree with that. But we start talking about it so much because it's the main issue out there. People are mean to each other. We're going to be nice to one another. And so we'll start showing this and we'll start reaching out and being nice to people. We're going to be kind to everyone. We're going to love everyone. And we're going to, and before you know it, this thing that should be a gospel fruit, no doubt we would be loving towards one another, it becomes all encompassing and we really strive after it. Now, the problem is at some point when you're dealing with an unbelieving world, uh, there will be. Issues in God's word that have to be brought to bear, but if kindness or loving one another—whatever loving means in this—in this, in this sense—it really means getting along and not having any conflict with, um, at peace with people, at least surface level peace. Eventually, what will happen is that we'll obscure the hard truth that, by the way, I love you. We're kind, but you're a sinner. What? That's not kind. That's not loving. But the church has gotten off of its message at that point, and it's moved towards this direction, and it's defined itself in its activity. And before you know it, um, the gospel message, the clarity of the message that I, that I ranked so hard earlier, becomes kind of secondary, because we're really what we're trying to do is reach out. And it just starts to take away any of the edge that the church has, and its purpose is to be placed in in this fallen world, so people can be saved. That's the first level. And you don't actually love people, by the way, if you think their road to hell is fine as long as we're nice to each other. You could fill in any of the many issues that are around. Take a social issue, whatever it is. And I know whatever the hot one is, you're you're sensitive about, so I won't say one of them. There's five of them going on at one time. But there's 20 you're forgetting, there's probably fifty you're forgetting that we're neglecting, but we pick one because that's the ones on the news, that's ones on Twitter, Facebook, whatever, and we get on that on that social issue, or it could be po- politics. You think you got to be part of one party in order to really be honorable to God? Well, neither of these things are biblical. These are not central realities for the church. But we get so tied up in them that we don't even know it, but we've conflated our preaching with these things. And it's hard for someone to discern, what is the church's actual message? Is it kindness? Is it social causes? Is it politics? It ought to be none of that. It ought to be the clear preaching of the message of the gospel, that there are sinners who need saving and only Christ can do it. And there's only a few voices that preach it. We ought to stick with that. Now, when people are born again, we should expect some things. But it might not be exactly what you particularly expect, by the way. But we can expect something. That's gospel fruit. But the gospel message becomes contorted and conflated in no gospel at all, and we are worthless as a group, as a church, or as any kind of organization if we don't get that right. And so the clarity of the gospel is something Paul, the Apostle Paul, one of the last epistles after he's preached a whole life of faithful, clear preaching, is still asking for clarity in preaching. What does that tell you? If Paul can fall off in clarity, we can too. It's, it's my belief that one of the reasons the church and Christianity is so sick and ineffective in America is not because we're not too involved with all these things, it's because we're not clear about the gospel. We're not clearly and boldly preaching it. We've gotten into too many other things and forgotten what our first calling is, and that stands the reason why so many people have no idea what the message is itself. And this is where the second point that Paul prays for is so important. He prays not just for clarity or precision about what the gospel is, but also about boldness to preach this message. Courage to preach this message. He knows he will need courage because if he believes the gospel message we're speaking of, people will be offended. People will not like this. They'll come against him. They'll oppose him. And when that happens, he will have to have boldness because he'll want to be quiet. Who wants to be persecuted for this? Who wants to be in chains for this? And he understands this. I read one commentator who said, right, one of the special marks of the Holy Spirit in the apostolic church was the spirit of boldness in their preaching. Didn't matter what happened to them, they preached this message so clearly and boldly. Look at what it says regarding boldness in verse 19. That words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. The Greek word for bold here means courageous. It means daring. It means dauntless. It speaks of acting without fear of the consequences. In verse 20, for which I'm ambassador, I'm a messenger in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. He knows that boldness is not something that necessarily lasts, that he may have been bold to this point, but maybe he'll falter. And so we ask the people at Ephesus, when you think of me, pray that I'm clear about what I say and that I'm bold in in saying it fearless in the face of opposition. What are some reasons that we may fail to be bold? Now when I say we, I'm talking about the church, and I'll be even more personal about pastors and preachers. What are some reasons we may fail to be bold? One of the reasons we may fail to be bold, and it's a reality in our lives as preachers and pastors, our own sense of sin makes us feel hypocritical. So we realize that when we're boldly preaching the message and we're talking about a need to repent from sin and turn to Christ, that any one of you can say, well, I know Tony, though, and he, he's, no, you know, he's got this or that in his life, or you can judge something you see. And there's weaknesses, absolutely, that, that weaken, at least in my mind, as I'm coming to it with any kind of uh, confidence, that weaken my ability to say to you this message. Um, so that can sometimes be one of the reasons we're not bold enough to preach this message. The other thing, really honestly, in the context of the church— um, we're afraid that we might offend people in the church. I'm not talking about just outside. That's certainly the next level. But just the fact that this kind of uh, explanation or just saying what the Word of God says about something is going to rail against something that even we as Christians um, buy into in the culture. It's just it's just been there for so long. We're ingrained in it. So you know, if the pastor says something the Word says uh, that's offensive, they take it out on the pastor. They take it on the teaching. And and there's a, a, a concern, a fear that will be... Uh, opposed, that people won't like us. This is the reality of why maybe we're not as bold as we ought to be. Of course, there's the, the ultimate reality that when the church does boldly preach the message of the gospel, unquestionably there will be opposition from the world. Um, there, the message of the gospel will come out. It'll be truncated when it's delivered outside the walls of the church. They'll take the thing that we oppose, whatever it may be, and say that's what the message is. No, that's not what the message is. The message is that God identifies what sin is. We are sinners, and we Deserve God's just wrath, but God has provided salvation in the person of Christ, trust in Him. But what does the CNN version look like, or the Fox version look like? It's, oh, they oppose this sin. They hate these people. They, they, and that's, that's, not our, that's not what we're here for. That's not what we're identified for. We're once part of all those things and still struggle with them. That's not what we're saying. That's not our message. Our message is, this is how you be saved from these sins. But they don't even like you call something sin. And so it's inevitable that as the church is faithful and clear and bold preaching, the world will come, and that definitely causes churches to lie lower, to be less, less bold, to be fearful. These are the realities of to, as to the reasons why we might not be bold. So courage is needed, and this is what we pray for. We don't pray for it to be easier for us. Notice Paul does not say, dear Lord, or Ephesians, pray that they release me from jail. It's not what he prays for. I'm an ambassador in chains. So pray for clarity and boldness. I mean, things can only get worse. They can get worse for him. And he prayed, that I, even though I'm in jail, and we know he was there for two years in chains, that he just keep preaching. We learned from another epistle that some of the imperial guard, those who were guarding, came to Christ. You notice Paul did not ask for power to live out the gospel as such. He didn't pray for success in turning the tides of the unjust Roman government and society. He prayed for boldness to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. When he wrote to the Romans, where he was actually positioned at that time in writing Ephesus, when he wrote to the Romans, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also for the Greek when he wrote to the Philippians, he said, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He's talking about being in prison. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Give me boldness. Whatever else you're going to give me by your providence, if it's persecution, if it's fruit and multiplication of the church, whatever it be, give me boldness. Boldness for what? To be clear about the gospel. When you have your moment be clear about the gospel. If you want to see the changes we all would love to see in those other realms, you of all people, we of all people must know that won't be reality until Christ changes us because we as believers have enough trouble with change in our life. You have no hope if you don't have Christ and you're not born again. So the greatest thing we could do for all these issues is to be as clear and as bold as we could possibly be about the gospel. As individual believers go from the fruit of the gospel and live out their lives in various ways, go forth in the way the Lord directs. But as for the church's mantle, remember what we're called for. I love the descriptions of boldness that we read in the book of Acts. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, Acts 13. In Acts 14, at Iconium, they entered together in the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way as that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Boldness. In Acts 14, verse 3, they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, dauntless, fearless, courageously. In Acts 18, the Lord said to Paul in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking, do not be silent. Later in Acts 19, he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Say, well, that's a big deal. The kingdom of God in the Roman Empire was not exactly appreciated by the emperor. He spoke boldly about the kingdom of God. In Acts 28, he was there two years proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus with all boldness. Jonathan Edwards captured it well at the time of this. uh, the first great awakening in this in this country. He said, true boldness for Christ transcends all. It's indifferent to the displeasure of either friends or foes. Boldness enables Christians to forsake all rather than Christ, and to prefer to offend all rather than to offend him. What applications can we make from a prayer request the apostle makes? What does it mean for us? There are several ways I would treat us as the body of Christ to respond to what we see being prayed for here. First of all, we should pray as a church for the clear preaching of the gospel, starting right in our own church, that it would remain clear, um, in extending to all other churches who believe in the gospel, that it would be the clear centerpiece of their preaching. Whatever the styles of the churches may be, the ministry philosophies that happen on a second level, the ways we approach this or approach that. Those things are truly on secondary levels compared to this first. That we churches who claim to believe the gospel of Christ would be clear on this. I promise, according to the way God's word lays it out, that as people, as churches are more careful about the clarity and boldness of the preaching of the gospel, that we would see an impact. I'm not telling you it would start a nationwide revival tomorrow. I don't know what the Lord would will. But it would necessarily have a better impact even in our, in our close constraints of our own neighborhoods and, and areas here if we would just see this kind of thing. So pray for this for all of us in church leadership directing churches in this direction. Pray for boldness in the proclamation of the gospel, especially in this country, in this land. We need this like we have probably never needed it before. In the clarity and the boldness, I don't think any of us should underestimate how much ignorance there is now about the actual gospel. If you are say, 30 years or older, you probably grown up hearing, even if you didn't grow up in the church, you probably were familiar with what the Christian claim about the gospel was. If you talk to people who are under 30 now, who have not grown up in a church, most will not have a clear picture whatsoever about the gospel message. So people my age often assume when we talk to people, well, they know some basis of what the gospel is. No, they don't. Many people do not. If you talk to your younger co-workers, uh, they often will not be familiar with the specifics of what we would describe as the gospel. It would be very novel to them. It'd be foreign to them. So don't underestimate the need for a bold and clear explanation of the gospel on a person-to-person level as you have opportunity, but certainly that the church would model this. I'll close with an encouraging statement made by a man who was a parachurch leader about 40 years ago. Kent Hughes was a pastor at the college church in Wheaton for many years. And he met this man named John Alexander, who was the head of InterVarsity Fellowship, which was primarily a college outreach ministry, a parachurch ministry. Alexander, in the 60s and the 70s, led that organization. He didn't preach regularly on a Sunday because he was running the ministry, the college ministry. And on Sunday, he would worship at different churches, and often he would go to the church that Kent Hughes was pastor of. Alexander wrote this, Two hues, and really he was meaning for lay people to gather up this discipline of praying for leaders of the church regarding clarity and boldness. But listen to how he puts it, and I think it's a great challenge to you as the people of the church to consider this matter. Alexander wrote, Every Saturday night, I pray through a list of pastors, thanking God for them, for their ministry, for their personal friendship. Then I intercede on this eve of Lord, another lord's day, that the Spirit of Christ will give them a good night 's rest and anoint them with wisdom, power, and joy for the morrow. I 'm not saying never, but almost never have I had a good night 's rest on Saturday, and it 's not just because I 'm doing things I shouldn 't do. It's because it's hard to sleep. It's hard to think of what's coming the next day. It's a difficult day. Most pastor's families do not enjoy Saturdays because dad may be there, but he's kind of blank. He's kind of comatose. That's just the nature of it. I'm not complaining about it. I know we only work one day a week, but I'm saying that that particular night is a difficult night. And so I think it's just a great thing to remember as you're enjoying, hopefully enjoying a Saturday, you know, for the pastor's heart to not be restless so he can get good night's sleep, so he can bring the word to you in the morning. And think of those. I think of the other pastors I know. I have many pastor friends. And I always think, whatever I must be feeling right now, I bet you a bunch of my brothers are too. And so this is one of these invitations given so wonderfully. And he says, Pray that the Spirit of Christ will give them a good night's rest and anoint them with wisdom, power, and joy for the morrow. Then he goes on. Then on Sunday morning, I go through the list again, interceding as they step into their pulpits that their proclamation of the whole counsel of God will be simple, clear, tender where it should be gentle, bold where it should be courageous, that it will be straight and true to the minds and the hearts of the listeners who say, sir, we would see Jesus. Then Alexander says, I pray that the Lord will bind Satan from attacking pastors and laymen, especially through loveless criticism." and that Christ will touch the congregation to hear, see, understand, and obey God's proclaimed truth. Then Alexander says, and I use this as an invitation for you, I invite you to join me in this Saturday night and Sunday morning discipline of intercession. Ask God to indicate those pastors he wants on your list. And there are many, many that you could put on your list. clarity and boldness in proclaiming the gospel. Lord God, give us Faithfulness in this. Let's pray, Father. We are grateful for even these concluding words of Ephesians. They are packed with meaning and significance and priority. I pray, O Lord, that we would see these words and recognize their importance for the church. And Lord, please give us clarity. May this this church, this pulpit, always give a clear presentation of the gospel. I pray that it would be we would be bold, not offensive for the sake of being offensive, uh, or jerks just to be jerks, but rather because we are feeling so urgent about this message, the need for people to lay hold of what, is being, what has been done for them. Lord, I pray that that would give us a boldness that allows us to go up against whatever might come our way, whatever threat might happen against us, that we would still maintain our ambassadorship, as you've called us to, to speak boldly with the words you've given us to speak. May that be true, not just of this church, but the many churches that are neighbors, that do believe in the gospel, trust in Christ, want the same thing. I pray that you would give us great unity in this message and this purpose. And Lord, if it be your will, we do pray that you would bring great revival to your churches. And Lord, we do pray, if it be your will, by your mercy, that you would extend that so that many would come to Christ. And that we would see the, our country renewed by the church's renewal. Help us not to doubt this. Give us faith that you are that powerful and can do this work. And Lord, we especially think on Memorial Day weekend when so many people have given the sacrifice of their lives so that we could have a freedom to enjoy. Especially now, Lord, while we have such freedom still, give us faithfulness about the greatest message of freedom that could ever be preached. The message of freedom from our sins and from judgment. Freedom to love and worship you freedom to live forever in you. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let us together turn in our hymnals, and the number of the hymn for our last hymn is 478, or I should say our hymn of response. Let's stand and sing 478.